No, I didn't. I didn't lack a thing. <laughs> Hebrews 20.20. We see Jesus, increment 2.23. That's actually true. I've never lacked anything because of the Lord's faithfulness. And neither of you, neither of any of us. Increment 2.23. Entitled, The Throne of the Majesty in the Heavens. And we'll go again to Hebrews 8.1, which is a truly pivotal verse in our study. In fact, I think you could see this in three major sections, Hebrews 1.1 through 7.28, and then second section begins in Hebrews 8.1, goes all the way through 10.18. The word that kind of connects the two first parts is the word throne, to thronu, the throne, found in, implied in Hebrews 1.3. Explicit in Hebrews 1.8 and then again in Hebrews 8.1. And then we do have a very pivotal reference to the throne in the third section, which would be 10.19 to Hebrews 13.25, that reference being Hebrews 12.2. So I think even though we're not majoring on the structure of Hebrews, we do see its kind of planned configuration and so in one way of viewing it, you can see these three major sections. There are other divisions, of course, that can be divided up into different configurations, but that's a pretty general one. So, Father, we ask now that you will grant us your grace from the dispensary of grace, which is your throne, that we may understand the things we're about to study, that we may comprehend the immensity of the insight and the information, the importance of the information that you're delivering to us through the spirit of grace. And we ask it in the name of our Savior Christ Jesus, in whom is the fullness of grace and truth. Amen. In Hebrews 1.3b, the Son, who is the theme of this whole majestic homily, quote, has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty. That's how the author puts it. In Hebrews 8.1, the PT, or the teaching pastor who wrote Hebrews, proceeds from the relative obscurity of the phrase, in the highest heights, in Hebrews 1.3b, to the clarity of the descriptive, quote, in the heavens. So in the heights, generally becomes in the heavens, specifically in Hebrews 8.1b. With the phrase entois uranois, you'll see these Greek phrases in print, entois uranois, we are reminded of a theme that might become relevant and pertinent in our future called Uranopolis, which is the heavenly city-state and not only a city-state but a state of mind and a state of intentionality that we are to be letting in us. That state of mind is also the mind of Christ, which we let in us in Philippians 2.5. In this time in between, or in this meantime, between the radical alteration of the human situation and the alteration of the human condition for the infinitely better, which will come about when our Lord our deliverer comes from heaven to change these bodies of humiliation into bodies of glory like his own. So we have come, according to the author of Hebrews, to Mount Zion, to the city, Paulus 
of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So I put heavenly together with city and come up with Oranopolis for a word that describes, again, a city-state above, which is above us and is free in Galatians 4.26, and a state of mind, which we are to have in this time in between. I hope you consider what I just said, because it might not be in print the way I just said it, and it's kind of just coming to me now. So, we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem in Hebrews 12.22. That means that though we don't see this city with our eyes, we can let this city-state be a state of mind in our mentality and in our intentionality in this time in between. This is the place of our primary citizenship, and we should note that because it's extremely important, especially when the rights of our citizenship are drying up in the time in which we live and in which certain inalienable light inalienable rights are being called not so absolute anymore by leaders. So we must understand that our primary citizenship is in a free state indeed. For Jerusalem, the mother of us all, the above Jerusalem, is free. And we are to stand fast in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free and not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage or yoke of slavery of any kind to any person, including slavery to guilt, or fear, intimidation, or tyranny, terror, or any other thing. So heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12.22, Galatians 4.26, Revelation 3.12, Revelation 21.2, 21.10, etc., is the place of our primary citizenship. Our citizenship in the nation or the national entity of which we are citizens is a secondary citizenship for us who believe. Paul says it bluntly in Philippians 3.20, very bluntly. He says, our citizenship, polichuma, is in heaven. In Ephesians 2.6, just as bluntly, Paul says, we have been seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. So by so much has our once purely earthly situation been altered. Once we saw this to mean, I'm speaking for myself now and for other dispensational friends of mine, once we saw this to mean only the position of believers in the heavenlies or of the church, but now we see it as the situation of all humanity in Christ, though the human condition due to slavery to sin remains largely unaltered. The relative obscurity of the term the heights in Hebrews 1.3, is clarified somewhat by the term the heavens in Hebrews 8.1. So the PT does what any good teacher should do, go from relative obscurity to a sharpened clarity in his teaching. Though the human condition and the condition of the evil age is largely unchanged, and this is the whole point of what I'm teaching now for the past few messages, Though the human condition and the condition of the evil age is largely unchanged, we have this archpriest representing us, interceding for us, riding the heavens to our aid and our support. In addition, the PT adds the throne to the phrase of the majesty. In Hebrews 12.2, he will further clarify the meaning of Majesty, megalosune, 
and say that Jesus has been seated at the right side of the throne of God. The throne is already a significant word in Hebrews. In Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, our inspired homilist quotes Psalm 45, 6 through 7, which in the Greek text is Psalm 44, 7 to 8. This psalm reference begins with God saying to the Son, the Father, our Father, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, saying to the Son, specifically to Jesus Christ, quote, Your throne, God, is for the age of the ages, or the age of the age, meaning forever. Hebrews 1, 8a. So you can blend 1, 8 with 8, 1. You got kind of a, a little poetic chiasmos there. The throne, to thranu, connects the beginning of the first major section of Hebrews, which is Hebrews 1, 1 to 7.28, with the beginning of the second major section and the literary center of Hebrews, Hebrews 8.1 through 10.18. Though the word throne is not mentioned in Hebrews 1.3, it is strongly implied in the clause, quote, who has sat down in the highest heights, at the right hand of the eternal majesty. Moreover, the throne is overtly highlighted in 1.8a of Hebrews, and we're going to revert to that shortly. But to the Son, he says, again, your throne, God, is for the age of the age, or forever. This throne, incidentally, is none other than that which the prophet Jeremiah called the throne of glory, thronos doxes, you'll see that in print, in Jeremiah 14.21, and again, more significantly, in Jeremiah 17.12 of the Septuagint, where it is also called Yahweh's glorious throne, our exalted place of sanctuary. And it was on this subject of the throne that Pastor Craig Brown did such a marvelous job in a series a few years ago and in which Pastor Brian Messick also did a series on the footstool. And so the throne and the footstool series complemented each other splendidly. Usually, we think of a throne as a place of authority, and that's probably the way we should think of it. But perhaps less often do we think of the throne as a place of sanctuary, which is God's throne. But that is God's throne. God's throne of glory is also our place of sanctuary. It's also a throne of grace in Hebrews 4.16. This throne is that from which the God of all grace in 1 Peter 5.10 dispenses his varied grace or many colored grace in 1 Peter 4.10. And he dispenses from there his timely help and timely mercies. God's glory is his grace. Again, this throne is none other than the throne mentioned in Hebrews 1.8, where God the Father addresses God the Son, saying, Your throne, God, is for the age of the age, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of equity. We have the word equity bounced around today, and it's anything but equity. It is the great inequity of racism and of bias, and of prejudice, and of group bias, and general bias. It's really quite wicked, and you can only discern these things if you understand, I think, the truth of the Word of God and the liberty and freedom expressed therein. Perhaps we'll have to do a 
July 4th Freedom Special message this year. Not sure yet, not promising it, but it's in my state of mind and intentionality. Again, we're looking at Psalm 45.6, which is the Septuagint of 44.7, cited in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. God's throne is, and this is important, God's throne is the dispensary of his enduring and universal saving mercy and his timely help and support in our times of need, which in this world and in this time in between are surely plentiful. But blessed are the needy, Jesus called them the poor in spirit, for they are the help by God our helper and by Jesus our compassionate archpriest. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the needy, for they are the helped by God our helper, Boethos, and by Jesus our compassionate archpriest. The reference to the throne in Hebrews 1.8 is at the heart of what we remember we called the florigelium, or make that the florilegium. I mispronounced that earlier and I'm doing it again. The heart of the florilegium, that's F-L- O-R-I-L-E-G-I-U-M, you'll see it in print. The florilegium flow, it's a, it's a cascade of verses from the scriptures that flows harmoniously from the exordium. Remember that? Exordium, the declarative sentence in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, the exordium or the introduction, it was followed by a cascade from that throne of verses from the Septuagint scriptures. And so I'm going to read that florilegium from in its entirety, with its references intact. So here it is in our translation from Hebrews 1.5 through 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The answer is to none of the angels did he ever say that. Verse 6, and again, when he leads his firstborn into future world, he says, worship him all of God's angels. In verse 7, and with regard to the angels, he says, he who makes his angels winds or spirits and his ministers a fiery flame. Incidentally, when I read that word firstborn again, I think of another series done by our own Pastor Brian Messick, in which he effectively explored the theme of the firstborn. But here it is in verse 8, the central, kind of central at least, reference to the scripture. But to the Son, he says, your throne, God, is for the age of the age, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of equity. You loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you instead of your companions, companions including angels. And, verse 10, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, says verse 11, and goes on to say, They will all wear out like a garment. In verse 12, And like a cloak, you will roll them up. You'll change them like a garment. But you are the same, and your years will never come to an end. And to which of the angels, tying this florilegium together in an inclusio in verse 13, which of the angels did he, God the Father, ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet? Sound familiar? 
should, it's Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, referenced so many times in the scriptures by direct quotation or by oblique allusion. Then finally in verse 14, aren't all the angels ministering spirits sent for service and support of those who are destined to inherit salvation? Answer, yes. The Florilegium has seven scriptural references. One in one five, you are my son, today I have begotten you. A second in one five, I will be his father and he will be my son. A third in one six, worship him all of God's angels. A fourth in one seven, he who makes his angels winds and his ministers a fiery flame. Fifth, and this is the one we will home in on, in verses 1, 8, and 9, your throne, your throne, that's the subject of Hebrews 8, 1 also. Your throne, God, is for the age of the age, and the scepter of your kingdom a scepter of equity. You loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. This is why, God, your God has anointed you instead of your companions, including angels. And the sixth reference is 1, 10 to 12, and it's in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. And the seventh is in 113, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. The throne quote, Hebrews 1, 8, 9, is the fifth of seven references to the Holy Scriptures in the Florilegium. Five and I don't do this often, but numerology does deserve a place in exegesis and in exposition. But I don't do numerology as a major, but as a minor, but an important minor. Five is the number of grace in biblical numerology, so it is significant. The next reference to the throne of God in Hebrews after 1.8 is 4.16, where it is specifically called the throne of grace. The throne of grace is a name that evokes the reality of God's sovereign grace by which the one who elects, see Hebrews 11, 5 to 6, is also the elected, 1 Peter 1, 20, Luke 23, 35, and the elected is predestined both to glory and to reprobation. Jesus was predestined both to glory and to reprobation. Therefore, he took the rejection of man and all its consequences upon himself, as he also took our election to glory upon himself, and we are all elected and predestined to glory in him. According to Bullinger, E.W. Bullinger, in his Appendix 10, which I revert to or, or advert to often, on the spiritual significance of numbers, <coughs> that's his Appendix 10 at the end of his companion Bible, he says five, quote, denotes divine grace. It is four plus one. It is God adding his gifts and blessing to the works of his hands. The Hebrew ha'aretz, the earth, by gematria, that is the addition of the numerical value of the letters together, is a multitude of four or a multiple of four, while hashamayim, the heavens in the Hebrew, is a multiple of five. The gematria of charis, C-H-A-R-I-S in the Greek, the Greek for grace, is also a multiple of five. It is the leading factor in the tabernacle measurements. Note that well. The leading factor, five, 
in the tabernacle measurements. That's coming up in our very next verse, 8-2, the tabernacle, the tent, a tent made and pitched by God and not by man, very important. And so five is the leading factor in the tabernacle measurements. Seven is also a distinctively important number in biblical numerology. It denotes, according to Bullinger and others, spiritual perfection. Bullinger adds, again in his Appendix 10, quote, it is the number or hallmark of the Holy Spirit's work. This may be one reason, and I always investigate that and say, well, where do you find that? And I think this will verify what he said as true. This may be one reason why four times the Holy Spirit is called the seven spirits of God in Revelation. These seven spirits intriguingly enough, are said to be, quote, before God's throne, Revelation 1.4. In fact, the seven spirits of God are also said to be burning like torches before the throne, Revelation 4.5. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of burning in Isaiah 4.4. That's the reason why sometimes our hearts burn within us when the scriptures are expounded in the way they ought to be. By the Spirit. In Revelation 3 1, Jesus is said to have, hold and have, have and hold these seven spirits of God. And in Revelation 5 6, the seven spirits of God are identified with the seven eyes of the Lamb. Moreover, we're told that these seven spirits of God are, quote, sent into all the earth, which highlights the universal mission, divine mission of the Holy Spirit. And it correlates with John sixteen seven. He convicts the whole world of righteous of sin, of righteousness and judgment, etc. Moreover then, seven spirits of God is a plurality that denotes perfection, the perfection of divinity, the divinity of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of grace, as he's called in Hebrews ten twenty nine, who is also the spirit of a new covenant, as we will see in Ezekiel 26, 36, and uh, other places, whose divine mission is to all the earth as well as to each of the just. The Spirit brings the grace of the heavens to earth. His divine mission is universal and is in accord with God's great intention to reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth by reconstituting them in his son, reconstituting them in his son. The throne of God, kind of like our subject, is related to the grace of God, which is always our subject. There are 40 references to the throne of God in the book of Revelation. 40 is another important number. According to Bullinger's appendix on the significance of numbers, 40 signifies, quote, divine order applied to earthly things. The tent or the tabernacle, skenes, is related to grace, as we will see in 8.2. The heavens are related to grace. See Ephesians 1.3, 2.6. Salvation, election, 
Justification, salvation, Ephesians 2.8. Election, Hebrews 11.5-6. Romans 11.5-6. Justification, Romans 3.24. Sanctification are all related to grace, Hebrews 2.11. They are all the products of grace, 1 Corinthians 1.30. The throne in the first and second major section of Hebrews are is also connected to the throne of God in the third major section. That third section will be 1019 to 1325, a largely exhortative one. In Hebrews 12.2 is where we have the explicit reference to the throne. The throne is conspicuously thematic in Hebrews as it is in Revelation. In the heart of the heavens is a throne. In the heart of the throne is God's universally electing and redeeming grace embodied in the man Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away and has taken away the sin of the world. Election, speaking of election, and it's hard to avoid that topic, root and fruit, I call it, from Amos 2, 9, I like that statement, root and fruit, election, root in its root and its fruit, is emphatically a matter of God's grace. As Romans 11.6 says, election is by grace. So there it is. Moreover, if it, meaning election, is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, including your work to believe in Jesus, your work of believing in Jesus. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is true whether we're dealing with the electing or the elected God. God is both an elector and the elected because God elected himself, as we're going to see. This is true, then, election is grace, whether we're dealing with the electing or the elected God, with the electing Jesus Christ or the elected Jesus Christ, with the elected community, Israel or the church, or the election of individual man or woman. It's always a matter of grace. The root of divine election is the God of all grace in 1 Peter 5.10. God is the elector and the elected in that God actually predestined himself to be in all of creation and all of creation to be in him. 1 Corinthians 15.28. God predestined himself to become human, to assume a human nature. And in that human nature to empty himself of the prerogatives of his divinity without diminishing in any way or to any degree his divine nature. By God's grace, God predestined himself to become human, to assume a human nature, and in that human nature to become obedient to the extent of the death of the cross and to elect all of humanity in Jesus Christ to union with himself by his grace. So it's specifically the Son who became human, the Son of God who is God, who became human, who became flesh. The significance of the action of Jesus sitting down as we see him in Hebrews 8.1 refers to his accession to the royal throne as king of kings. It's also a reference to his completed action as an archpriest who sits down after his work is finished. 
unlike the priests of the old order who, quote, keep on standing day after day, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Hebrews 10.11. In fact, let's take a look, and I'll have this in our printed version. Hebrews 10.11 and 12 together. Very pivotal passage. Hebrews 10. 11 and 12, it says, Now every priest, meaning of the Levitical order, stands day after day offering frequently the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's why they keep standing and keep offering. But this one, this our great archpriest, our priest of such great significance, this one, having offered one sacrifice for sins forever, Compare that with Hebrews 7.27. Sat down at the right hand of God. doesn't say the majesty there. Even more clearly, it says God. Here we have not only an allusion to Psalm 110.1 again, but also to Psalm 110.4 again. The seating of the Lord, the seating of of the Lord or the enthronement of the greater descendant of David by the order of the Lord or God the Father pertains to Jesus as both king and priest, king of kings and great archpriest, priest of priests, we could say. Jesus' action of sitting down has significance both with regard to his being a king to whom God gave all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, and to his being an archpriest who's once and for all and for all people in all times, self-offering for sin has been accepted by the Most High God. The Son of God's action of self-humiliation, listen carefully to this, the Son of God's humiliation or his action of self-humiliation, was the action of God. The kenosis, as it's called, and the tapenosis, as this action is called, was and is according to the nature of divinity. Humility isn't just of the human nature. Humility is a characteristic of the divine nature, for it is the divine one who humbled himself, taking on humanity. That's important. That's an insight. That's an immensely important insight. As the glory of the enemies of the cross is actually their shame, so on the reverse, the humility of God is actually his glory. So I want to repeat this. The kenosis and the tapenosis, or the self-emptying and the humiliation, both found in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, was and is according to the nature of divinity, the true nature of the true God. Jesus' action of self-offering was also the act of God as well as the act of the man Christ Jesus. When we say that we are privileged to be partakers of the divine nature, and we are. We're saying that we are participants in God's nature of humility. As the glory of the enemies of the cross, and I'm repeating this again, as the glory of the enemies of the cross 
is actually their shame. Philippians 3:18 and 19. So the humility of God is actually his glory. This brings to mind something Fleming Rutledge said that stuck in my mind. She made the statement that this is worthy of repetition, saying, quote, The sacrifice of Christ was not God's reaction to human sin, but an inherent original movement within God's very being. It is the very nature of God to offer God's self sacrificially. That may be one of the most profound and exquisite statements, theological statements I've ever read. So I'll repeat it. The sacrifice of Christ was not God's reaction to human sin, but an inherent original movement within God's very being. It is the very nature of God to offer God's self sacrificially. So this certainly agrees with the notion that humility is in the divine nature as well as in the human nature of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight. People who are proud, people who are arrogant, people who are insolent, people who go around saying, this is me and you better like it, have nothing to do with the nature of God and are not partakers of his humility. All authority in heaven and on earth given to Jesus Christ by God the Father is the authority of grace and life. For I have received from my Father a commandment or authority, and it's the commandment of life. John twelve forty nine to fifty, Romans five eighteen, First Corinthians fifteen twenty two, Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The dominion of the God who saves is the extent of His salvation. That's a rewrite of what we've already said in a previous increment, in the last increment, of a kind of thesis or a principle. And that is, the dominion of the God who saves is the extent of his salvation. For that, you can see what we've already seen in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12, 1, 13, 10, 13, as well as Isaiah 66, 2a, and Genesis 14, 19, and Psalm 68, 20, Septuagint 67, 21. And in this connection, God's kingdom is a saving sovereignty. This is a point made a few years ago that I never forgot by Pastor Mike Lee from this very pulpit right here. So, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? The Most High's domain is the heavens and the earth, and his dominion, to use another word, is universal. And if the dominion of his salvation, or the extent of his salvation, is the same as the extent of his dominion, his salvation is universal. It is to be remembered, therefore, and it should be treasured and cherished that we have such an archpriest. Have, as we said before, echo, is in the ongoing present tense. 
I'm repeating something from the last increment. This is the value of Hebrews on the level of our time. God's throne of glory is the throne of grace and of ever-enduring, ever-abiding mercy because seated on the throne is the God of all grace whose mercy endures forever and is dispensed to all. And because on the throne is the great archpriest who is also the Lamb of God, this is extended forever. Because the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. This is well illustrated And I want to bring this in, and I hope I'm not quoting too often from Barth, but I'm excited about what I'm reading there. And I'm only quoting this paragraph in Barth because it had splendid illustration of our theme, and it always shocks me when I see something that is a splendid illustration of our theme. Barth wrote this on his in Church Dogmatics and probably the most important theological thesis ever written or book ever written or series of books ever written, but in... Church Dogmatics, volume 4.1, pages 314 to 315, this paragraph appears. Note, if you will, on your own and in your own way, its splendid illustration or its splendid illustrative effect in Hebrews. Quote, I'm quoting now, paragraph in Bard. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, who was once obedient to the Father and offered himself and reconciled the world and us with God, is in eternity and therefore today, now, at this very hour, our active and effective representative and advocate before God, and therefore the real basis of our justification and hope. There is no moment in which Jesus Christ is not judge and high priest and accomplishes all these things. There is no moment in which this perfect tense is not a present. There is no moment in which he does not stand before God as our representative who there suffered and died for us and therefore speaks for us. There is no moment in which we are viewed and treated by God except in the light of this representatio and oblatio or representation and offering of his son. All honor to the human and historical pragmatism of representatio and oblatio in this relation I'll say that again all honor to the human and historical pragmatism of recollection and proclamation but in relation to the divine history of the representation and offering it can be considered only as an epiphenomenon with a significance which is only secondary and indirect that of an instrument and witness that of an instrument and witness The eternal action of Jesus Christ, grounded in his resurrection, is itself the true and direct bridge from once to always, from himself in his time to us in our time. That's Atlat. Notice the final phrase, in our time. To repeat our own thesis in closing, which we garnered from our study of Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. And I want to repeat this from our last increment and from other increments and close with this. Our archpriest, who saves us completely, ministers in our behalf in the time in between the radical alteration of the human situation, which was brought about in his appearance to put away sin, 
and the permanent alteration of the human condition which will be brought about in his second appearance when he appears without having to deal with sin to bring salvation to a waiting humanity and a groaning creation. Father, we wait with great and, anticip- great and intensifying anticipation for this liberation, for this emancipation, for this act of true divine freedom. We await our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, <clears throat> who will come and bring salvation to us all. Father, give us the grace to stand in this agona. And when we fall, or if we fall, to stand again, knowing that it is our Lord to whom we fall and our own Master who makes us stand up again. We thank you for these truths, for the insights, for the immensity of the information, the importance of the information you're granting to us in this time of history, in this time of crisis, in this time of tribulation and pressure. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Keep us attuned, Father. Keep us attuned to your word, sensitive to your spirit, and loving of all people. Amen.